Fantasy Radio. This is your host, Elon Levin, and this is a comics podcast. This is the show for people who know President Loki was an improvement over Trump. President Loki could import all of the better points of the Norse public policies. Uh, He'd be our first chaotic neutral president, which is an improvement over the usual neutral evil. And we'd get Medicare for all and free snakes. Joining me today is writer, comics writer, TV writer, uh, Daniel Kibblesmith. He is an Emmy-nominated writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and the writer of comics like Marvel's Loki 2019, Black Panther vs. Deadpool 2018, and others for Marvel and DC. He is also the author of the picture books like Santa's Husband and the upcoming Princess Dinosaur and co-author of the humor book How to Win at Everything. He was one of the founding editors of Clickhole, and his humor writing can be seen in places like The New Yorker, McSqueenies, APM's Marketplace. He works and lives in New York with his favorite author, Jennifer Wright. uh, Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hey, thank you for having me. I also like the way that you say uh, Princess Dinosaur, like like the movie phone, like you're, it's not (laughs) even out yet, and you're already giving it a boost. Well, I, as I read that, that's actually one of the things that my cat has named, um, Excuse so me? I, well, my cat's name is Dinosaur, and oh, it's sort God. of like, but I've decided that your book is about my cat, so thank you for writing it. Yeah, as the author, I'm allowed to make that canon. I think spiritually, it's probably about a lot of people's cats. <laughs> is it an, a children's book illustrated? It or? is. It's um, the same illustrator as Santa's husband, uh, my friend uh, A.P. Quatch, and uh, what it's actually yeah. about is a... A uh, dinosaur who is a princess. Uh, she's, you know, maybe around three years old. Uh, and it's a book um, for toddlers, uh, about toddlers, how, you know, you don't have to be any one thing. Uh, we kind of came up with it because we noticed a lot of parents were trying to steer their little girls away from the fairy princess stuff, but they get obsessed with fairy princesses, you know, just regardless. Yeah. Like, they'd go to a friend's house or they'd see a commercial or something, you know, go to a themed birthday party. So I think that um, it puts a lot of pressure on parents to kind of combat gender stereotypes from a young age or, or act like, um, you know, it's necessarily inherently good or inherently bad to fall into those roles. And the way we saw it was that um, little girls can be princesses and dinosaurs and kind of yep. oscillate wildly moment to moment. And anybody, you know, who has a toddler or who has been a toddler maybe remembers the uh, swath of destruction that you cut through everything, even if you're wearing a fairy princess costume at the time. Yes. So, yeah, we wanted to make something that kind of uh, synthesized, like, the reality of, of being and raising a little kid um, and maybe, you know, make, make parents worry a little less about uh, their dinosaurs turning into fairy princesses and vice versa. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, people contain multitudes, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're going for. Yeah, I I, I feel like I was definitely part of the earlier generation where, like, people didn't think you could rectify those multiple identities. Um, I I never was bit by the princess bug at all anyway, but I think it was pretty clear that if I had been, I would have been, like, serious source of trauma. So, (laughs) um, and yeah, I, I think it's great, especially to encourage them to be able to explore all those different sides of themselves, especially for boys as well. So yeah, it's it's for it's for all kids, but it was certainly um, partially inspired by when I worked at a library, and the the parents would come in, um, you know, really well-meaning people uh, with their kids, and um, they'd say, "Hey, you know, Abby, do you want the book about uh, dump trucks? You know, or do you want the book about ninjas?" 
And she'd be like, no, 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 I want the one with Tinkerbell on it. Uh, and, you know, they'd say things like, "We're everything's princesses right now, we're going through a princess phase. It's really interesting to have so much of, so much of the uh, existing uh, sort of gender stereotype being that, you know, the parents wanted their little girls to, to be delicate fairy princesses. And then in recent generations, there was this uh, confrontation of that where it said, okay, we're going to try to have, you know, gender neutral toys like science and Legos and things. And the fairy princess stuff still just happens. So, yeah. uh, it, well, I mean, I think we're in a sort of specific cultural space, you and I, like as New Yorkers, as people from sort of particular political orientation where that is really true. But I definitely, when you step outside of a lot of the spaces that we might be in, it's, it's, it's still kind of 1950 out there in a lot of places. Yes, that is, that is certainly true. So hopefully this works for everybody. Hopefully this works both ways because it's just kind of like, you know, the book's not aspirational. It's just dealing with the reality of like how kids see themselves when they play. Uh, so when is that going to be out in 2020? Uh, fall of 2020. I don't think we have an exact release date yet. Got but, it. Uh, yeah. Uh, can visit uh, your local bookstores frequently for all kinds of reasons. <laughs> so how did you... Uh, so I, uh, um, you were doing uh, some of these illustrated children's books before you were working on uh, comics, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Or kind of concurrently, I guess. I don't know. I do, a, I, do a, I do a lot of stuff. I kind of I, I kind of put stuff out there and see what people will you know say yes to and actually let me write. Um, but yeah, Santa's Husband, uh, which you know you can tell from the title, has sort of a, a similarly you know um, mission oriented mm-hmm. uh, young person book um, came out in October of 2017. So I think by then I'd already done I'd already done a few comics. Uh, I'd been doing things for Valiant. Uh, for a couple oh, years yeah. at that point, you had the um, Valiant High series. I heard great things about it. Thank you. Yeah, it's one of it's one of the things I'm proudest of. Um, it's uh, a little hard to get people to check it out sometimes because it's an alternate universe uh, high school story, which you know people love. But uh, for Valiant, uh, which some of the people don't know the characters as well, uh, so we tried really hard to make it work as an introduction to the Valiant universe as much as a riff on the Valiant universe. So. That ideally you could pick up Valiant High and then move on to other Valiant books, or you could be a Valiant reader and then pick up Valiant High and say like, "Oh, it's so funny that they made Bloodshot the gym coach because he's oh, yeah, sort of a, the Punisher, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator type." That's great. That, yeah, that makes sense. That's basically it's a high school AU comic. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, exactly that. <laughs> It's kind of amazing. I mean, Marvel has that as a video game, right? It's got that Avengers Academy video game, or I don't even know if you call it a video game anymore. I'm so bad at game stuff. Sure. Is that what they call them? Mobile experience. Um, a mobile experience. <laughs> well, um, and uh, yeah, I think that there's such a big appetite that fans have for seeing the characters they love in these other contexts. Yeah, I love that. And one of the biggest influences on Valiant High was, um, I mean, I'd say the two biggest influences on Valiant High are both uh, from Marvel World, which is... Uh, X-Men Evolution, of course, mm. uh, which would have been the big um, canonized high school AU thing uh, when, I was, when I was coming up. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, 1602, uh, by, yeah. uh, written by Neil Gaiman. Um, and uh, even though that one is a wildly different setting, uh, it, it really lays the, the groundwork for how do you map the archetypes onto each other. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, who are the who are the mandatory players for a high school uh, s- setting? Who are you know your breakfast club, and who uh, in the the other sandbox that you're playing in, you know, conforms to those to those archetypes? So that's I mean that's the real fun of AU, and I, I think because I'm not an artist, uh, I imagine if you're an artist, the fun is drawing them <laughs> and designing the characters. But uh, as uh, forming from the writing side, uh, figuring out like who clicks like puzzle pieces into, uh, you know, like, X-Men Evolution was also really good at that, like figuring out which characters have the sort of inherent uh, authority or gravitas to be teachers versus who was obviously going to be a student. So, you know, Kitty Pride, even though she's uh, grown up now in most of the Marvel stories, she... Uh, has the the legacy of being the teenage character, so obviously she's one of the kids, and Wolverine is a million years old, so obviously he's one of the teachers, uh, and it's it's just it's fun. It's so it's so crackling to to get to play that game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that folks love about the existing comics universes, which is why you know we're so wedded to them, and sometimes folks can have a harder time breaking out from like. Marvel U, Valiant U, DCU, like whatever the U is that you're into, is that we have like these elaborate identifications with uh, different tropes and different kinds of characters for different people. Like I think that if you go up to a fan who's maybe not active in fandom and isn't even aware of the concept of like high school AU as like being a trope, like you could say, okay, if this took place in a high school, who would each person be? And they would immediately have opinions on that. Yeah, yeah, no question. Uh, and high school in particular, because that's an experience that most people have had. Um, yeah, I think you're I think, right. It's yeah. it's universal, and the personalities are also really big. Um, and it just looms, it looms so large in pop culture anyway, that I think it's kind of mm-hmm. on the tip of our tongues at all times. We're at, yeah. Whereas I feel like if you say you're going to do like a Star Trek influenced like AU of Marvel, people might take a second to think about it. But if there's one thing we know is in the Star Trek AU, Loki is obviously Q. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think Q is more powerful than the way I'm writing Loki, Mm because I need a I need a Loki who can really get the crap beaten out of him. (laughs) But uh, definitely personality wise. Yeah. So um, I I. uh, I'm somebody who's read um, not all of the recent Loki series, but a, a good chunk of them. I I think the first one was I came in reading um, Kieran Gillen's um, Journey into Mystery, which, I mean, I, his Journey into Mystery run of Lo- with Loki is uh, just one of the greatest comics of the post-2000 year period, if you ask me. Um, you know, I've really enjoyed Al Ewing's work. Uh, Asgard's Assassin is really great. I actually didn't read President Loki, although I meant to. It did look quite good. Uh, so you're, you're, the, you're the newest person picking up the contemporary, contemporary uh, Loki mantle. And it's so interesting because he's really one of the characters that was super important to the Silver Age. You know, he was the Avengers' first bad guy, like the reason the Avengers came into being. And he's gone through such an evolution um and i feel like increasingly actually not even uh, almost from the start it felt like of the of the journey of the character into being increasingly one that people would like as a protagonist and like cheer and want like good things to happen to them um was sort of the question of how are we going to reconcile this character's history with which you know included doing bad things that made the avengers <laughs> team up uh with our desire to see them as a not just a protagonist but a heroic or charming protagonist, 
even if they're not like heroic in the way someone like Spider-Man is heroic uh, in in the current series. And it's always interesting for me to see how different writers are grappling with it. And I, I wasn't sure like what was your thought? How were your th- what were your thoughts about like that coming into this project? Yeah, I mean you're right. It's like a 60 year redemption project. Um, I so. Uh, like you said, there were tremendous runs uh, of Loki as protagonist comics, you know, if not Loki as outright hero comics uh, leading up to this. And um, it's uh, incredibly intimidating. It's gigantic shoes to, to fill. Um, but I think that I mostly just sort of treated him the way that you would treat any protagonist, which is he is a person who thinks he's right. He's good at what he does, uh, and he thinks he's right. And whether you're writing, you know, a, a book about, uh, you know, uh, Doctor Doom, uh, or uh, you know, Magneto uh, getting revenge for the many, many horrible things that have been done to Magneto, you, uh, I think, naturally just sort of put yourself in their shoes. Uh, so with Loki, uh, it was really fun because he's, uh, you know, you called him chaotic neutral earlier. So he's a chaotic neutral person who has gained this kind of self-awareness about how to help the world, but it doesn't come mm-hmm. naturally to him. But he is being rewarded for doing it. So uh, you have this kind of um, person who really wants to be good for various and shifting reasons. Uh, and I think that's enough. I mean, that's enough to, to drive a story. Uh, you have somebody who uh, has uh, the goal of uh, wanting to keep a good thing going and the uh, ever-looming fear of uh, it not working out uh, because he is afraid of his own nature or aware of his own nature. And I think that's, I think that's something that everybody can relate to. And in superhero comics, it's ultimately not that different than, say, Wolverine who is uh, tr- always trying to be a good guy, but you know, kind of fears that he is an animal who is just going to go berserk and kill everybody. He, or, you know, Peter Parker, who wants to save everybody, but he's got this voice in the back of his head telling him uh, that he's a screw-up. So uh, it's the version of Loki that we sort of like collectively evolved into is, is very Marvel Comics. You know, it's a, it's a, a flawed hero who is in the shadow of his perfect golden brother, who is literally king of the universe now. Uh, And I think that uh, in a lot of ways it's easier for, as much as I love heroic Thor stories, it's easier for me personally to relate to the guy uh, who uh, everybody thinks is questionable. Yeah, Thor is so much more interesting as a side character for Loki than he is as his own protagonist. Like, I just think that that's super clear. I think a lot of Loki readers are agreeing with you. I think that's sort of the it's it's uh, a little little dichotomy is uh, forming. You know, like the the Batman people and the Superman people. You know, because mm. everything's so everything's so rich. I think if you don't read comic books, you maybe don't realize how much uh, nuance and variation. Uh, there is in it because it all just looks like bright colors and punching, but uh, mm-hmm. it's like you know it's like sports or or politics or um, you know a, a Game of Thrones is like a, maybe a more direct comparison. It's like you have all of these little people with different like levels of status and motivations and things. So um, you're the fan favorites, the people that you relate to. It's often for you know like you were saying with the the 
alternate universes, it's often for deeply personal reasons. I think that, like, the beginning of Marvel... Most people, I think, would say the beginning of Marvel really giving Loki a redemption arc dates back to the popularity of the character of Loki after coming out of the first Thor movie, which is, like, kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, I mean, you have this incredibly charismatic, excellent performance uh, from the actor, you know, former stage actor with, like, you know, and that's how Kenneth Branagh ended up bringing him into the Marvel Universe, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and people forget that. That's, like, why he was in there. That's Kenneth right, Branagh was like, ah, esteemed stage actor. <laughs> we're going to do, do Thor Shakespeare style. And it largely works. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was very insightful. Um, So, you know, but the character is super popular coming out of the movie, which is just interesting because, like, he is never more evil than he is in Thor 1. He, like, gets compared to a Nazi by a Holocaust survivor. But the fandom is like, I mean, God, I could get banned for life for some of the observations I could make about people's responses to him from the first movie. But um, Because they're so sexual. Because because they can't I'm going to get in... Yeah, I mean, it's going to be like, is like, I don't want to say like, oh, people wouldn't have had this reaction to the character if he was cast as by someone who was less charismatic and handsome. But like, I think we can acknowledge that that's true. Um, but I think that the be- that, but I think that the beginnings of the reimagining of the character actually date back to um, the first time. And I didn't look at when that was, but the first time we see Loki in a female form, um, which we may have forgotten was because he had taken over Sif's body, not because he shapeshifted. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot cooler when you're just like, yeah, shape like Loki is like fluid and is going to appear femme in this issue uh, versus is like, no, he's still Sif's body <laughs> and is running around on Sif's body. Yeah. It's regular evil. It's not a, it's not a cool uh, uh, character progression. Yeah. Uh, but I felt like that was actually a big transformative moment um, if, in, in at least comics readers in terms of like how people thought about the character. I don't know. I mean, wh- when did you start thinking differently about Loki? I mean, I would, I would agree that that was around the time that I think they figured out uh, there's more here. Um, and that's a very kind of, that's a very modern era uh, I think uh, phenomenon is that um, you start digging a little deeper because of how many stories have been told. Um, but I, I would say that Loki has always been, always been sympathetic in theory, mm-hmm. uh, the same way that the same way that Dr. Doom and, and Magneto had been, um, if not sympathetic, at least you can recognize their motives. That's like, Oh, like Dr. Doom is very prideful and he wants yeah. to be the best. Uh, and he's in the shadow of, of this other guy, and he's uh, scarred. Uh, and you know, Wolf, uh, sorry, not Wolverine. Magneto has, uh, you know, uh, is a Holocaust survivor, which uh, comes out kind of more in the modern era. Uh, really, yeah. really fleshes out his character. Um, I think Loki uh, is very like, you know, he he looks like an evil old man. <laughs> he looks like the mm-hmm. devil for most of his for most of his uh, appearances. So I think that the evolution of Loki sort of coincides with the evolution of comic books, where it's like, well, we're interested in all of the characters, and we're 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 telling a, a lot of stories about Thor, um, and we're running out of stories where he just like you know Loki does something crafty and Thor uh, figures it out and uh, hits him with a hammer. So I think even like around like the Walt Simonson stuff, you start mm-hmm. to see Asgard being this kind of like bigger soap opera 
uh, where there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, new characters introduced, and the the universe is expanded dramatically. Uh, and uh, I think that Loki starts to become another Asgardian in a way that everything kind of just has to to drive this big ensemble story forward. And then I and then I think you're right. I think you get into this other era of like. Uh, the kind of modern, what I think of as modern, um, like Civil War type comics where it's like, okay, now the bad guys are going to be the protagonists like half of the time. Because yeah. uh, we we love all of these characters, we're interested in all of these characters. Um, and then people start looking at, uh, you know, with like that little little bit of deconstructionist eye of like, okay, so what, mm-hmm. what do we know Loki can do? We know that he's a shapeshifter. Um you want to see what has he never done before? What has he done in mythology that we've never yeah. done in comics before? And one of those things is being a woman, like kind yeah. of a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think, yeah, I think it was it was very logical um, that that eventually, eventually you would you would do that. And if you go back and read, you know, a lot of the the sixties uh, Loki, uh, he's doing super weird stuff just because comic books yes. were weird at the time. Yes. You know, kind of everybody yeah. was doing weird stuff, but the stuff Loki's doing, you can kind of uh, put it in a box of things that Loki could still theoretically do today because mm-hmm. he's a creature of myth and he's, uh, you know, on the, the chaotic neutral side of things. And like Jack Kirby is brilliant and therefore is going to make people do weird things because it's fun to draw. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the and it's funny because I I, I, I don't know I, I def, yeah I think like obviously like my number one mythological Loki fact is that Loki is specifically and clearly gender fluid. I think one of the cool things that you've done is uh, you know Loki like uh, one of the many like things where he has been put down on and therefore has resentments that are relatable resentments that you're like yeah no this is fucked up is that he. Uh, you know, he was like the small frost giant. So, of course, it makes sense for him to shift if he's going to live. And if he's going to be, you know, sent off to live with the Asgardians, he's going to, like, look like them. And it's also easier for him to do that because he's human-sized, you know, basically. And you've thought about, like, well, if Loki is a human-sized frost giant, like, then there's other frost giants who don't fit in, too. You're talking about Durf. I'm thinking about Durf, the character you invented. Uh, yeah, um, uh, Durf is a. Uh, for people who haven't picked up um, uh, any of the the new Loki's yet, uh, Durf is a frost giant who is like less than Loki, less than half of Loki's size. He's like a little a little elf monkey. And uh, in our in our prequel story that came out in um, War of the Realms Omega. Uh, along with some of the other War of the Realms epilogues. Uh, Loki arrives in uh, Jotunheim uh, as the new king, and all of the giant giants are obviously skeptical of this uh, because their culture sort of uh, is stratified by strength and combat and size. And uh, as a result of that, they have this very, 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 very little uh, outcast, uh, uh, frost giants named Durf, uh, who Loki obviously takes to. And that's our first story about Loki as king, uh, and what Loki trying to do the right thing uh, looks like. Um, I wanted to have a character that Loki genuinely sympathized with, versus mm. uh, seeing versus seeing opportunity in being kind to them. And uh, the only 
person that I think Loki could really purely identify with is a version of himself. So when he gets to Jotunheim, basically on his first day, his first official day as king, he meets this tiny little frost giant, and he says, oh, I know exactly what this guy is going through, uh, and it awakens a sort of, you know, protective, um, almost a parental instinct. I think that's great, because I think you've just described a really understandable way for why Loki would you know, uh, do something heroic in there. And it is through identification. I, I, one of, one of the questions I sort of prepared was thinking about like, you know, like a lot of charismatic, uh, generally male, but not exclusively characters in genre, eh, not even just in genre. Like you always run who are, who had been villains and who are sympathetic. Like you always sort of run the risk of like losing that, which makes people all, villainous and like you know like what what are the things that that makes them a challenging character and and good and interesting because it's not just an easy it's they're not a marshmallow they're not you know something soft and sweet like they're more complex than that and versus like how when it goes a little bit too far into the term that we may like a sort of a phantom term, and I realized I didn't really like the TV tropes definition of it too much. But like a woobification, if the term, I don't even know if that's familiar to you. I'm not. Familiar. Um, I mean, I'm familiar with this phenomenon, but, but I'm, not, I'm not familiar with it. Is, that it word. is so common. <laughs> yeah, it's you know. So it's sort of like how are you? How do you do a Loki who is you know someone who's capable of changing and has been in this, as you said, like a sixty-year you know redemption project. With, while still keeping some of those sharp corners that are essential to him being the god of mischief. Never mind, like, Loki in mythology was never the god of evil. That always kind of gave me, like, a rash. But um, he was the god of mischief, and that isn't an easy and cuddly thing to be, necessarily. Uh, so how do you strike that balance? Yeah, I, th- I think Loki is a little bit immune to that phenomenon, because I, I think about stuff that I like, like uh, Spike on Buffy, right? And this and this is a big thing in the in in TV shows that, that go on for a long time is that the villains kind of get absorbed into the gang. Yes. Because you you like them, you the watching at home like them, and uh, then they join the team and they fight bigger villains. Mm. And especially especially in genre, but also just in things like uh, like Aaron Sorkin shows, is, I've noticed they fall in love with their bad guys, and then the bad guys just like get added to the ball of heroes. And the new bad guys show up, and then those people yeah. are sympathetic. Um, which I think also speaks to the way writers and audiences kind of love villains and uh, the, the guilty pleasure uh, endorphins mm-hmm. of, of rooting for them. But I think Loki is a little immune to that because he's not hes not on a leash. Uh, he's not a bad guy all the time who is now acting out of character He's a literally shape-shifting mercurial liar who is doing things for different reasons in different moments. So I think that if he was, if we were lucky enough to do 50 issues of Loki being this golden god uh, who uh, was uh, only committing good deeds, and then in the very last issue, he blows up the earth and says, surprise, I'm evil. No one could... You you might be disappointed as a reader. I mean, also because that's a completely insane story. 
But uh, no one could say, well, that's not Loki. That's not how Loki would behave. Yeah. So I think in some ways Loki is sort of immune to the, the, the defanging because you don't, you don't really know. You don't know if he's, if he's really good, if he's doing an impression of somebody who's good, uh, or if he's doing good uh, in the service of himself, or even if it is accidental. Which is something that uh, we want to we want to play with uh, in this in this uh, story is uh, mm. whether or not whether or not um, the the things he's trying to do work out and uh, maybe things uh, he's not trying to do uh, work out instead. So um, I, I I think that I think that Loki's uh, an exception. You know, you don't if you put Joker on the Justice League, then you have yeah, a lot of yeah. then you have a lot of questions. But Thor has always wanted Loki to come back into the fold. Right, right. Uh, and most most modern Loki stories, like all the stories with Loki as protagonist, are about that tension. Uh, and I think everybody has people in their, you know, friends and family, certainly, who are maybe uh, mentally ill or addicts or just untrustworthy, where you, you love them. And you see a version of this working out, uh, so mm. you you keep you keep uh, the door open. Uh, I think I think Loki fits that category. Uh, I don't think he's a I don't think he's uh, your classic bad guy joins the team, but he's still a villain. Uh, I think he's a guy where you just you kind of don't know what he's up to. So, how much of the story do you keep? I mean, this so far looks like it's a very close POV and that you have him telling us, the reader, the story in the order he wants us to see it, but we are seeing it from like an over-the-shoulder perspective by and in large. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a smarter way of saying what I'm doing. Yes, oh. <laughs> that's, you ex- that's you explaining back to me in an intelligent way what I've been doing kind of instinctively. Uh, but yeah, that's it exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's much appreciated. So um, <laughs> that's what critics are for. Uh, so then, um, it, that being the case, like, is that how, that's how you, I guess you, I, I was going to ask, like, is that how we're going to continue going? And I guess the answer is probably, I guess. Um, um, yeah, that's my answer too, is probably. Uh, I think that, cool. I think that because you're dealing with a character who, um, and uh, if you haven't read issue two, uh, by the, the end, by the final page, it's clear that Loki's in a much bigger situation than he originally envisions. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, I think we're going to we're gonna get to play with the rules of the Marvel Universe a little bit. So when you're dealing with a character who is a creature of story and kind of operates on the principles of mythos, you get to shake up the format a little in a way that I really like uh, and haven't had this exact opportunity to do before. So we're trying to do a little bit of fourth wall breaking with things like uh, Loki's tricksters tips uh, that come out every Mm -hmm. issue uh, and um, playing with the idea that Loki has some degree of omniscient narration but is still uh, caught off guard by things. And uh, obviously as the writer I have my own my own theories as to exactly what this, uh, how Loki is able to narrate the story and what he knows and doesn't know and why. But, um, for now it feels like it's, it's working. Uh, I think this is, this is how I want to, how I want to tell a story where you are supposed to empathize with, uh, the former bad guy. 
And in some ways, it's just very comic booky. You know, if you read a story mm-hmm. about Peter Parker swinging around, he's just talking to himself. Yes, uh, it's the same first person, first person narration. Uh, so if you have first person narration from somebody who knows more than you do, uh, it's it definitely brushes up against omniscient narrator. Uh, what, you know, but it's also interesting because uh, you have a character where you're dealing with a, a kind of. I feel like the tone and fourth wall breaking that you're doing fits in really well with like the Al Ewing, uh, low key as uh, agent of Asgard particular tone. I think it's almost like this is the the, the low key flavor of fourth wall acknowledgement and how it's thankfully very distinct from like the Deadpool fourth wall. It's distinct from the She-Hulk fourth wall, which too many people have forgotten. Um, yeah, true. It's just one flavor of fourth wall. And like, I would be really, it would be really bad if somebody made the Loki fourth wall, the like Deadpool fourth wall, for example. Yeah, I think that it's a, I think that there are degrees. Uh, Deadpool is, you know, <laughs> Loki is up against the fourth wall, kind of whispering to you and uh, She-Hulk breaks the fourth wall and Deadpool is uh, shooting you through the fourth wall. <laughs> That's the hierarchy that I, I came up with off the top of my head just now. I, I think that's accurate. That's great. I know one of the reasons that some of my friends who aren't normal comics people are super excited to listen to this episode is because so many people are such a fan of your just writing and as, as, as a humor writer and um, as someone who's really good at the internet and funny. Uh, <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose track of some of those questions as well. Um, so like how, how, what is sort of the journey from writing comedy into, into writing comics for you? I think it's really similar to other people who uh, do both. Um, I grew up reading comics, uh, obviously, and always wanted to write comics. But when you are a writer starting out, you don't necessarily know what your career is going to be because uh, there's so many people uh, saying no, that you have to put a lot of stuff out there at the same time. So I've always written comics, or at the very least, you know, the proposals and, and, and pitches and uh, mini comics with friends and stuff. Uh, while I was uh, in film school, I went to uh, Columbia College of Chicago and um, I took uh, a little bit of classes at, at Second City. And uh, what I ended up doing was kind of falling into the Chicago stand up scene via uh, YouTube videos uh, that I was making. Mm. So I would um, do video collaborations uh, with friends or if there was like a variety show. Um, uh, there's a great uh, independent stand-up showcase in Chicago called the Lincoln Lodge, and they would have a variety slot. Uh, so sometimes you'd have like a band or a funny musician or something, and they, w- they would let me come up uh, with a DVD player that worked, you know, maybe an eighth of the time, and uh, vamp while I tried to get the, the DVDs working so I could show like short films that I had made. So um, I've always been writing comedy um, and... Uh, the comedy that I was doing was more kind of, you know, short form narrative characters in the service of a story or, you know, like a, a gag that you have to ramp up to, um, less stand up, less improv. Uh, so I, I think that, that everything I've always done has been wanting to write funny stories. Um, you know, the case of comic books, uh, brooding stories, uh, when, when, uh, people let me or when I trick them into letting me. <laughs> Uh, so I, I guess I sort of just pursued both uh, concurrently, and then when I started to get comedy jobs, 
um, having credits on your resume uh, helps you uh, get the attention of, of publishers. Uh, and uh, I had a friend um, who worked for Valiant uh, who hired me to do some gag strips. And then kind mm. of that led to that led to meeting other people at Valiant. Uh, and that led to um, uh, getting asked to pitch on Valiant High, which was going to be like a digital first. So it's very, it's very incremental progress. Um, you know, doing a one-page gag strip in a, in a Valiant comic sort of leading to a digital exclusive Valiant miniseries leading to, um, uh, you know, getting to do like a very short Harley Quinn story uh, in the, the 25th uh, anniversary anthology. So I, I think I, I, at the same time, uh, thank you for saying I was good at the internet, uh, which should probably just be my new Twitter bio. Um, I, I guess I was just making friends, making friends in comedy, uh, talking about comics constantly uh, on the internet, um, and sort of, uh, in a very kind of incidental way, becoming known as somebody who would write comic books for you uh, if you if you liked what I was making uh, and had an idea that we could collaborate on. Uh, so it was it was very very slow, very incremental, uh, but very organic, um, and I feel like it all kind of goes together in my mind. Do you feel like writing comedy for the internet, especially in a short form like Twitter, is distinct than writing for late night, or is or are they more connected? I think it depends on what you're doing. Um, at the at the late show, uh, we kind of all write everything. We don't have a lot of dedicated beats or anything. So certainly, if you're mad about politics and you have a uh, snappy one liner. Uh, that you could put on Twitter, um, I I might say that I have a responsibility to pitch that for uh, my actual job, uh, the show that mm. I the show that I write on uh, that uh, uh, allows me to pay my bills. Um, but uh, because of that, Twitter, my Twitter especially, has become more and more kind of talking about comics or telling people to please check out my comics uh, or just like the things that are so half formed that they can only exist on Twitter. You know, things that are these sort of like incredibly impulsive, stupid thoughts that, uh, I have to, I have to get out of my head. Uh, and that I appreciate that for some reason people follow me and, uh, allow them to enter their heads. That's really interesting. It's, uh, it's I, sort of a, it's sort of a group. It's a, a very charitable kind of group therapy thing that people follow me on Twitter. Hmm. I, I mean, I don't, we, we well, it's not charity. It's like you're providing us with the necessary entertainment to survive in our current climate. Well, I, I appreciate I, I appreciate that. For me, it is therapeutic to have uh, something where there are no rules. Hmm. I, I mean, but I also think about like the particular format of like there's a photo and you're commenting on it. It's sort of like a modern version of the uh, of the single the single panel comic. It's almost like meme. I mean, yesterday, as I was getting ready to, to interview you, uh, a friend of mine had reposted one of your tweets and had literally reposted it with a headline like, this is some rose water to like de-stankify your timeline. And it was your post from July 24th, 2016, uh, that has the picture of um, Mads Mikkelsen and Tilda Swinton looking super hot. And she's like, just androgynous enough. Uh, that like all folks are like oh yeah um and uh and then with the headline when you meet a european couple on vacation who wants to swing and you're like shit maybe uh, like that's a particular format uh of humor 
Um, and it's interesting because it made me think about like I, I used to work at the Writers Guild East. A lot of the, the comedy writers for late night who I spoke to, they'd kind of come who were a little older than our generation. had kind of come in from submitting gags to the late night shows. Like people used to just like fax gags. Oh yeah, sure. To the late shows that would make an individual joke, I guess, of a unit of joke. And that's interesting because those, I think, were just sort of calling themselves into existence from nothingness almost. Whereas this sort of photo reshape, sort of meme, like that's a meme, that's sort of a meme culture thing that you invented there, year. Yeah, I, um, I definitely agree. That I think that it's a very internet era uh, joke when you know it's things like my face when. Or, you know, that feeling when, you know, you're sort of, you're springboarding off of something funny that you found. Um, and uh, obviously, like, a joke that's going to get told verbally, uh, or that can be written down and sent via fax machine and has the, the full context it needs to survive. That's something where you have to write write and provide your own setup. And I, I, I think that's I think that's really interesting, the, the difference between uh, kind of fooling around on the internet and telling jokes for free where you can kind of react to a thing and then you have the technology to share that thing. Uh, like you're all playing mystery science theater together, but with the entire world. Ooh, that's a great one. Yeah. And that's kind of how, kind of how it feels to me. You know, you're, you're riffing on, you're riffing on a thing that is happening. You know, the, the, this will, this reference will age terribly if somebody listens to the podcast a year from now, but the, the day where everybody was excited about the 30 to 50 feral hogs, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that day will not be forgotten. I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> I hope it lives on in, in uh, yeah, our, our own mythos. Uh, but, you know, that's that's something where you can kind of just say whatever because uh, everybody's uh, participating in, in the phenomenon together. Whereas if you're writing, if you're writing a, a late-night joke, especially kind of a classic fax machine era late-night joke, you have to say, mm-hmm. you know, President Clinton told reporters today that blah, 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 blah. Sounds to me like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and that's and that's a joke where you know you have to provide uh, you have to provide the context about what's what's happening and kind of educate the educate the listener uh, so that your punchline works. Right. Do you think that this kind of form of internet humor is like changing the way humor works in other formats, like in TV writing? I don't know. I think a lot of the language is. Uh, you see things like commercials uh, trying to be uh, funny or sort of exist in a, an ironic space or, you know, even a post-ironic space. Uh, I think that, yeah, the internet becoming so ubiquitous and almost having its own vernacular uh, is definitely seeping into more mainstream stuff. But uh, I don't know that that's that different than, you know, slang. Uh, I, I'm not. Sh- mm. I'm not sure that that's that different than um, the way fads have always kind of had a life cycle. Where uh, my dad used to say, if you heard Johnny Carson uh, use uh, a, a cool new slang word, you knew it was dead uh, because he because <laughs> he was he was the guy. You know, he was America's America's friendly, uncontroversial mainstream man. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's hard to say. I, th- I think almost certainly because it's a place that so many people are hanging out all of the time. But um, it's it's uh, I think you know there was there was a weird Twitter is sort of now most of Twitter. Um, mm. But I don't know if most of Twitter is necessarily reflective of the world. So there's there's still probably a bubble. Uh, I think that uh, extremely online people 
as uh, as we call ourselves, um, are still probably not influencing mainstream culture with our thought patterns and uh, language choices. I mean, I think there's probably a lag time. I, I think it would be almost inconceivable to me for that not to eventually be something that is like shifting. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, that uh, it's not uh, we're not we're not driving the car yet, but that day's coming. Does that mean that like the average basic bro comedy movie is going to eventually be something I find funny in ten to twenty years? I think that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do. I do, and I think that people. I think that that's also just how brain chemistry works. Is that you you settle into this place where you have maybe softened a little bit as a person and also uh, maybe you have more purchasing power or political power now that you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s. I mean, a really good example, we went out to dinner at a, at a pretty nice place to celebrate our anniversary and uh, they were playing uh, Novocaine for the Soul by uh, Eels or The Eels. <laughs> and nothing tells you that you're 35 like hearing the music you loved in high school and college in a expensive restaurant. Because, you know, right. a few years before that, it would have been you know, Frank Sinatra or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, oh, that's, that, that's real. You know, that's, that's a big flashing beacon that says, you are an adult. You are currently mm. participating in and driving mainstream culture. So uh, since I am also of the internet and uh, apparently I'm the music I like is what they're catering to people in restaurants with, uh, I, I think you're probably right. I think that the way we talk to our friends is going to be the normal way of talking uh, until uh, revolutionary young people uh, uh, understandably put us in our place. It's also interesting because I was just thinking, like, where is it that I go to access humor? I see funny things in social media, although I'm not, like, an addict to meme pages. My husband is kind of more from that culture than I am. I, I'm sort of in there so I can make topical stuff for political purposes sure. to an extent. Um, I'm like, what are the memes that I can then use to make them be about workers' rights to organize? Um but uh, but the, the, I'm more likely to see things that I think are funny on television than I am in a movie theater, for sure. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think TV is a little more immediate and a little lower risk. Um, it probably goes through less filters a lot of the time. We, we react really big when there's a joke in a movie that reminds us of something from the internet or from maybe a, a, a more contemporary kind of kind of cool comedy show like The Good Place or something. Mm -hmm. Like when a joke of that sort of sharpness and, and modernity gets into a movie, it sort of like takes me aback for a second. I, I think you're right. I think I'm right. used to movies being, you know, one or two years behind uh, how my friends and I are talking. I was a little bummed out when the new Spider-Man movie had a joke about throwing up in your mouth a little because I felt like we all agreed that we'd moved on from that. <laughs> that if you've heard somebody, and that was a, that was a rule I, I learned uh, working for The Onion as well, that if uh, two to three people come up with the same punchline, you probably want to dig a little deeper. That you might reject something on principle. If more than one person thinks of it at the same time, it might mean that there's something more, less superficial uh, if you keep working. And how is writing comedy for like late night, which is not like, it's character driven in the sense that Colbert is a character, but it's not narrative driven in the same way as a comic book, like different from writing for comics, especially with you have the expanded visual uh, 
it's bad a visual ability of a comic where you can literally draw like anything so long as it's not a dick i guess yeah <laughs> they tried that once um and we talked about it on colbert uh oh yeah the uh the um uh batman damned i believe the title is is called uh had a oh in a previous... oh batman black label yes, i wasn't yes, even yes, being yes, specific yes. no 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 not at all but you're right not at all. i was just latching onto an example that i'm pr- particularly fond of um that's great i'd say you know i'd say it's ultimately um about uh the biggest the biggest difference i think is that in narrative uh you're you're telling a story about a character and the character should be relatable to the audience in some way you know they want something or or they're very competent which makes them attractive uh you know or they're or they're the underdog which you know at least in like most western audiences you, that's the person you root for and mm-hmm. uh with comedy that's kind of for everybody, you know, topical comedy. I think the protagonist is like the audience. It's our continued shared well-being uh, and the, the catharsis that that comes from understanding something uh, and hearing it, you know, retold in a way where you don't, you don't feel crazy. Like things are bad. Things are definitely bad, but uh, there are also people trying to gaslight you that it's not bad. And I think the the one of the biggest functions of the the late show is that you know, we're we're turning things into jokes, but we're turning things into jokes so you know that you are not crazy. Uh, so I think it's really similar because it's a lot of storytelling and uh, analogizing, um, and you're kind of you're kind of using the the host. Uh, as a relatable person to tell you how you feel about things that are that are happening to you like I don't have the words for this but here's a show uh, with uh, a really funny charismatic (laughs) actual genius at the center of it uh, and uh, a writing and writing and producing staff behind him spending a whole day talking about like well what is this like what does this mean you know what is this when someone does this uh, what is it like in your life? And now that they're doing it writ large, you know, are they behaving like a kid at a birthday party? Or are they behaving like a drunk stepdad? Um, uh, I'm not talking about any president in particular. No, but <laughs> hypothetically, but it might be somebody who, uh, you know, literally is a stepdad. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's it's tough. I, I think it's it's like a, an analogy I use a lot is like um, if you're watching somebody. Uh, writing at a computer and you can't see the screen, you know, you don't necessarily know what they're writing. If you see somebody playing a video game and you can just see the controller in their hands, uh, something like um, writing Loki might be like playing a big, you know, open world Zelda game where it's like, well, what does this character need and how is he going to get it? Uh, And I relate to him because it's, you know, third person and he looks like, uh, I feel like I am him in this world. Uh, Mm. And then... Uh, writing something like The Late Show is like Mario Kart. It's like, we just got to get through it, man. We just got to go. Throw the bombs along the way. Throw the shells along the way. (laughs) So um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's nuanced, but ultimately it just comes down to, you know, um, two different, two different kinds of storytelling, like uh, different tools available to you in these two different kinds of storytelling. Well, speaking of making Loki relatable, um, uh, you or and or artists working on the books, such as Oscar ba, uh, Bazaldua, uh, 
and um, also uh, variant cover artist, The Great Pabs Tar, uh, have invented a new uh, casual cosplay of Loki for the book, which is the t-shirt that says L-O-W space K-E-Y Loki. And I saw that and I was like, are you aware that people are going to make are going to make that t-shirt at home and that it'll eventually be something that Marvel might sell? Like, how did you guys come up with that particular t-shirt gag? Like, are were you thinking about that in terms of cosplay? Like, how did that kind of come together? Yeah, no, a million percent, all of the above. Because I because I buy those shirts. I'm the guy who right. I am the guy who uh, goes to the gym in my I'm not Daredevil shirt. Right. Uh, right. And I have uh, I have uh, the purple one. Um, that's um, a few years ago, uh, Matt Fraction and Kelly Sue DeConnick did a, uh, a fundraiser on uh, on a We Love We Love Fine, I think the website's called. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for um, a uh, anti domestic violence uh, charity, and uh, I had to get that purple shirt that said Hawk Guy. Yeah. On it. Uh, so yeah, I think that. The the most fun thing about writing Loki is that everything is meta narrative, right? Because he's mm-hmm. the god of stories. So uh, I one hundred percent thought, hey, you know what would be funny, and you know what he would actually do in character is uh, wear uh, wear a funny uh, t shirt uh, that would um, kind of call attention to him as a celebrity when he's uh, going out in the city in his street clothes. And then also, obviously, it could be one of these t-shirts that I love, that uh, people could make their own versions for cosplay outfits, uh, and that uh, conceivably uh, could be in a store at some point. So yeah, we did that. We did that fully aware of what we were doing. That's awesome, and 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 wise. I'm surprised more art, more uh, more books don't lean into that. Do you guys get? Are you guys going to get a cut if it happens? Oh, I'm I'm <laughs> sure that that's not how it works. Uh, but it's uh, it will, yeah, I'm sure it's not either. But I always ask. It will make me it will make me happy to see them. It will make me happy to see them out in the world, and especially the homemade ones. And people have started yeah. sending me uh, similar ones, uh, either sending me blank ones that they know that they can add the letters to, uh, and somebody mm-hmm. on Twitter sent me one. That was the exact same cut uh, and color scheme, but then in in loopy gold uh, glitter writing, it said "Living my best life," which they <laughs> observed and and I agree is also extremely Loki. Yeah, oh, that's really great. the The other big fashion observation, I actually just generally, there's a lot of interesting fashion. There's a lot of interesting fashion decisions that I feel like are really particular to this book, but really well substantiated by canon. Um, and wondering if you, if you, if this is something that you and uh, your penciler, uh, Oscar Basel Dua, uh, were, had like sort of worked on together or kind of how those choices came to be. Uh, yeah, it's, um, I, I think it, it definitely originates for me. Um, most of the clothing choices are in the script and that's just mm-hmm. something that I love as a writer um, and as a comics fan. Uh, I think that we've been doing these stories for so long as a culture, and one of the things that keeps uh, that that is closer to the surface than ever is the human aspect of it. Uh, that they are people first and superheroes second uh, in a lot of cases. Uh, so I'm a big sucker for things like um, Scott Pilgrim, where you get to see them in all their little all their little outfits. Uh, and the the storytelling that you can do by putting somebody in street clothes 
when it's logical to do so. Uh, and I loved the Chris Claremonts and John Byrne uh, X-Men. Um, and also, you know, uh, a lot of other artists uh, who were on the, the Claremont X-Men run, um, they would have, you know, you get to see Wolverine in his jacket and his cowboy hats. And it's almost like a different, mm-hmm. it's almost like a different superhero costume uh, in, in some ways, because it still kind of conveys something about them in that moment. Uh, so yeah, it was very important to me that, uh, that we, uh, get to put Loki in a bunch of little, in a bunch of little outfits. Cause he, he's a confident person. He, uh, he, he knows, he, he knows he looks great and he knows he's doing a bit, you know, he's in on the bit. Um, in our Lockjaw series, uh, we are ambushing D-Man, uh, who is the, the, the sidekick, the secondary protagonist for our, our Lockjaw story, since Lockjaw can't talk. It was useful to have a, a human around <laughs> who could kind of discover things and explain things. So uh, I picked D-Man because he's had such a rough go of things, and he really seemed like somebody who needed to pet a dog. Uh, but yeah. but D Man gets uh, D Man's not in his superhero costume when he gets ambushed. He's down on his luck. He's depressed. He's on the couch. He's wearing a hoodie and his own wrestling merch and like a and like a pair of like lace up boots, like kind of like Doc Martiny books uh, boots that um, uh, our artist uh, Carlos Villa uh, put him in. And I just I just I love that because he's still dressed as a superhero. He still has the big D on his chest. Um, but, uh, yeah, maybe it goes back to my love of, you know, AUs and like, uh, variant cosplays and, and things like that. But, uh, these are all, you know, these are all still costumes. Like Loki's wearing green glasses, uh, which I think is very superhero-y. Uh, mm-hmm. he's just also wearing blue jeans. <laughs> right. Right. You've got the casual combination. And, 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 and the way he's really aware of clothing and like, you know, he's like, uh, I, in, in issue two, Minor spoiler, I guess. Very minor spoiler. Uh, Do not fast forward. When he's when he's um when he's like talking with Tony Stark through the um through the uh through his digital assistant screen, basically, um you know he sort of comments like, "Oh, and now you're wearing a pencil skirt because of the way his face comes in through the uh, digital assistant and sort of takes over her body and her form." And I love that how like Loki is like, "We're going to acknowledge this." about fashion and we're going to acknowledge this about gender and like straight up talk about how like that's not how I do femme and like Tony Stark is sort of like we're not going to acknowledge that bodies exist um yeah and it was sort of an interesting character moment I think between the two of them although the whole issue is just uh, 50% is like them in contrast to each other but yeah I mean certainly and well first of all uh, uh thank you for putting that so succinctly again um yeah that's sort of how I see those characters uh, I think that uh, Loki spends enough time in a female body that he is aware of his own prettiness uh, in any form and, you know, how he likes to accentuate it. Uh, and he's also just, uh, he's a theatrical person. Uh, he's uh, a, a very, I think there's a line in that same conversation where he says uh, that people call him dramatic uh, I, I think that I think that it makes a, a lot of sense that Loki would have that Loki would have uh, carefully chosen outfits for the occasion. So you know he can make an entrance and he can work a room, and it's it's a form of manipulation, which is ultimately his whole deal. Yeah, 
uh, and then, but uh, I, I love the way that I love the way that you point out that the 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 contrast to that is that Tony's not even thinking about it. Tony's just in the computer. Yeah. He has no he has no qualms uh, about uh, the way that uh, his his hologram gets mashed up uh, onto the female body because Tony's just yeah, Tony's guess, just yeah. pure information in that moment. Totally, totally. Like, it probably was literally unaware of that until the moment that Loki pointed out that that wasn't like the most obvious thing to have happened. Right, and then maybe famous playboy Tony Stark starts to feel a little self-conscious about it, which is also a fun thing to play with. It is. It really is. I, I if it's if it hasn't come through in the interview yet, like I'm really enjoying this series a great deal. Um, it's it's one of the, the the Bane books that I'm I'm really trying to keep up with uh, in Marvel in terms of like when it's out, I'm going to check it out. So. So thank you for joining us and thank you for, for making comics worth reading. Um, uh, do you, I feel so stupid being like, where can our listeners find your work online? <laughs> Which is usually how I end every episode. It's like, our listeners probably follow you online. Yeah, but, I'm, I'm but around. But humor me. Uh, humor me. Well, uh, you can pick up uh, Loki. And thank you for saying such kind things about it. I think our, our entire team is just like hitting it out of the park. And we've got mm-hmm. these insane variant covers coming out, which is just like icing on the cake. Because you go through Ooh. so much work to make a comic book and you're enormously proud of it and you see the finished thing and then the editors come out and say also uh here's a here's a new variant cover by you know jen bartell or or, or the one you mentioned for- you have a jen bartell cover coming we out do, we do i believe it's number four uh it's Dude. part of the wave of uh, mary jane uh cover takeovers Oh. Um, yeah, or the, you know the one you mentioned by Babs Tar that kind of broke the internet a couple of days ago. Yes. So uh, thank you so much for the the kind words about it. And um, everything I do, you can find me at kibblesmith.com. I actually update my website, which is weird in 2019. Yeah, uh, it and is. And <laughs> I'm at kibblesmith across all social media, so you can you can follow me there. But uh, it won't all make sense, unfortunately. I mean, I, I feel like it does. I'm, tr- I'm trying, man. I'm trying. Um, well, thank you again for joining us. And uh, for folks who are new to Graphic Policy, uh, graphicpolicy.com is a comics website. And we also cover comics adjacent and uh, culture, movies, TV, video games, uh, Graphic Policy Radio. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever fit great podcasts are found. You can follow me, Elana Levin, on Twitter as E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana Brooklyn. I'm on Twitter a little bit too much. Um, and uh, I hope you'll join us uh, for more episodes. We have upcoming coverage of the um, uh, Shira season three. Uh, we're finally going to be covering Young Justice, uh, also season three. And obviously more great interviews with comics artists and writers um, and the folks creating art that we love. So thanks for joining us. And like we say, keep it geeky.